going to talk about orphans, but actually go beyond that a little bit as well. Um, and so let me just explain real quick. We are breaking away from our Ephesians um, series for one Sunday, but I think it's quite appropriate where we ended last week as we're getting into this section on the household code. We see how much God loves family and how much God treasures the family and desires for families to be whole and desires for humans to exist within a familial relationship, and he himself is making a family. And so today, as we think about the plight of orphans and the crisis, orphan crisis around our world, I want us to think also how it ties into what we've already been talking about in Ephesians. Now, to start us off this morning, I want to give a, a little illustration that you may remember this story from um, a few years ago, but in 2007, and the story, it's kind of weird, it, you may think it's kind of funny, but it's really kind of sad too. There was a, a man who was, uh, had um, muscular dystrophy and he was in a wheelchair, and it was somewhere in Michigan, and he was cr- about to cross the street, or he was crossing the street, and at the intersection where he was crossing the street, there was an 18-wheeler that had pulled up there, a big old semi-truck. And um, I guess this semi-truck couldn't see this man in front of him in the wheelchair. This man was in his wheelchair crossing the road. And so the light turned green and he revs up the engine and starts to take off. And he hits the guy's chair. And in doing so, he turned the chair sort of forward and he began to push the chair. And the handles of the chair actually got lodged in the grate of the truck. And so you can actually see a picture here. This is a a true story. Y'all go to my next slide because this isn't working. There we go. The handles of his wheelchair got lodged into the grate of the truck, and he began to drive down the road. And now bystanders saw it and started waving, and so did other motorists. They started waving, and even two off-duty police officers trying to get the attention of this truck driver who was oblivious to it, just totally oblivious and just driving along. He actually got up to 50 miles an hour and drove for two miles before he came to a stop again with this guy lodged in the grill of his truck. Now, like I said, it may maybe sound funny to you, but for the guy sitting right there in the chair, it wasn't funny. And all the bystanders were sitting there going nuts, trying to get his attention, uh, people on the side of the road, people in other cars and everything else. And he had no idea until he got to that next stop that there was a man lodged to the front of his car. Now, the reason I give this illustration is to simply say that the reason we do an Orphan Sunday is because we live in a world that is trucking along like an 18-wheeler and just running over the oppressed and the vulnerable and the weak in society. Just running right over them. And we are called as believers to be a voice for the voiceless, to stand up for those who are weak, to stand up for those who are vulnerable. We've got to be like those bystanders, waving our arms at a world that's just flying 50 miles an hour down the road. Those other motorists trying to get the attention of this, of this trucker. And so on Orphan Sunday, we, this is a Sunday we stand up and we wave our arms. And I know it's just this little group here, but hopefully the Word of God will penetrate our hearts and it will flow out of here. And we can take a, a heart for orphans, but beyond that, a heart for the vulnerable with us and make a difference in this world. We want to be a church where the generations converge to enjoy God and then go change the world. So today on this Orphan Sunday, we begin by talking about more than just orphans. I want us to talk about 
the vulnerable, the oppressed. Here's how it's going to start today. We're going to go from a a wide-angle view of God's love and mercy for all those who are vulnerable and weak and helpless, defenseless in society, and then we'll narrow it down to orphans as we get further into the message. Now, you guys all know how we preach here at this church, and and normally we have a passage of Scripture like Ephesians, and we go verse by verse through it. So I'm not starting with a text today like that that we're going to exposit. I prefer expository preaching, but today we're going to be in several different passages in Scripture. So just either you can jump with me from passage to passage if you want to, or you can just hang with me and mark these passages of Scripture in your notes or in your Bibles. But here's my first point. We're going to get right into it. Number one here, God's heart beats for the vulnerable and the oppressed. God's heart beats for the vulnerable and the oppressed. Um, we're doing this series or this, this, this study after church on Sundays, going through the book uh, that David Platt wrote called um, Radical Together, which is based off of his book Radical. And if you read that, you know David Platt talks about us needing to have this radical love that, that does more than just we sit here in our church buildings with our programs and everything, but that we're, we're making a difference in the world. And, and so we're talking about that, and in conjunction with that discussion of radical, I've been reading a couple of other books, and one of them I read just recently, to me, has been one of the best, I'm reading, is one of the best treatments of this subject of, of caring for the vulnerable and the oppressed, or mercy ministry, or if you want to call it social justice, you can call it that. And the book is by Tim Keller, and some of you may have read it, called Generous Justice. Has anyone read Generous Justice? Okay, one person here. But Keller gives a, he, he mentions in that, in that uh, book the quartet of the vulnerable. I'd never heard that phrase before, and I went searching for it, and Keller says he didn't, he didn't coin it, but I can't find who did coin it. But he talks about the quartet of the vulnerable, and I never heard that before. And he talks about how in the Bible, basically, there are four groups of people that God calls on his people to defend over and over and over again. And those are the widow, the orphan, the poor, and the sojourner or foreigner or immigrant, if you want to put it that way. I'm just going to call it the foreigner for today. So we've got the widow, the orphan, the poor, and the foreigner. The Bible goes out of its way to say over and over and over again that this is who we are to minister to. Zechariah 7, starting in verse 9, says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your hearts. Deuteronomy 27, 19 says, Cursed be anyone who perverts the, just, the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, and all the people shall say, Amen. So i got two questions this morning. Number one, why, at least two questions for this first point, why does God care about the vulnerable and the oppressed? And why should we? Why does God care about the vulnerable and the oppressed, and why should we? Well, first of all, why does God care so much about the vulnerable, the oppressed, the weak, the defenseless? Why does God demand justice for the helpless in society? Why does God care so much about orphans? Because, first of all, it's a reflection of his character. 
It's a reflection of who he is. Deuteronomy 10, 17 says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. So here we are telling us who this God is. Lord of lords, God of gods, great, mighty, awesome. Then verse 18 says, He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Verse 19, Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. And by his name you shall swear. Psalm 146, verse 8 says, The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widows and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. Psalm 68, 4 says, Sing to God. Sing praises to his name. When you talk about God's name in Scripture, you're talking about who he is, his nature, his character. Sing praises to who he is. Lift up a song. Continuing in Psalm 68. Lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord. Exult before him. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. So God, in his very being, in his nature, in his character, he is a deliverer, a rescuer, a protector, a savior. So in light of that, I'll ask the second question, why then should we care? Well, I guess our first response might be, well, we should care for the vulnerable and the defenseless because we're told to in Scripture, right? Isaiah 1, verse 17, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Proverbs 31, 8 tells us this, open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. So I guess the first reason, well, we should because the Bible tells us to. But secondly, we should care for and defend the vulnerable because, well, we are made in God's image. We are to be image bearers of God. And if it's in God's nature to care for the vulnerable and the weak and the helpless, then it should be in ours too. Matter of fact, it says this in Proverbs 14. Whoever oppresses the poor man insults his maker. You want to insult God? Give no heart for the poor and the vulnerable and the weak in society. God, that's God's nature. He cares about the helpless and the hurting. And he says, whoever oppresses the poor man, he insults his maker. But he who is generous to the needy honors him. You want to honor God? Then be a person who cares for the vulnerable and the weak in society. So we love orphans and widows and poor and the sojourners because in doing so, we image God. Our motivation isn't just to be cool or hip because it's cool today to do social justice, right? Because all the cool churches are doing it. You go to Catalyst or you go to any big church conference with the young, cool pastors, and there are young, cool pastors out there. I know I do not fit into that category, but if I were one of the young, cool pastors out there, then, then I'd be very tempted just to do these things or to push these things because it's very hip right now and cool to care about the vulnerable and the weak. And I'm afraid a lot of times our motivation is simply that. Or 
Hollywood is really into this too, you know. Caring for the orphan. I mean, you don't, you, this isn't one of those topics that Hollywood's going to make fun of Christians about. Care for the orphans? Yeah, we care for the orphans too. I mean, Angelina Jolie will come right beside you and say, Amen, brother, sister. Let's care for the orphans. So our motivation cannot be the same as the world's motivation. Matter of fact, I would say that if we have a heart for the orphans, it's a, that's why I'm starting with a broader picture here. It's a heart for the vulnerable and the oppressed, and it takes us into the non-popular areas as well. Because you know what? Orphan care is directly tied to issues such as abortion. It is. And if we care for the orphan, then we're going to care for, if we say we care for the weak, the vulnerable, the most weak, the most helpless in society are the 50 million that have been killed over the past 30 years. The most weak in society. And so this whole care for the orphans, it takes us into a broader place that, that if we're going to be God imagers, that, that coolness and hipness and being a, a church that, 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 that's really uh, on the cutting edge, well, it takes us into places that will go beyond that, beyond just fitting in and being cool. So we love the orphan. We love the widow. We love the poor. We love the sojourner. God loves them, and we should love them because we image God. But there's a problem here. I am way too weak. You are way too weak. Because if the sermon were to end right here, we've simply set up another law for us to follow. A law that I'm too weak to follow. We cannot embrace justice and care for the oppressed and the vulnerable. We cannot at least do it the way we should. We cannot do it with the right motivations until we have been transformed by the cross. Because until the gospel of Jesus Christ takes root in our hearts, we do not know what it actually means to care for the vulnerable and the weak and the helpless, orphans included. Let me say that again. Until we understand the gospel and what the gospel has done in our hearts, we do not understand what it means to care for the vulnerable. We can't even get close to understanding what it means to care for the vulnerable because all we'll get to is the point of human empathy. And you know what? We can show orphan videos all day long and stir up a lot of human empathy. Human empathy is not sufficient to deal with the orphan crisis in the world or any crisis with any group that's vulnerable in the world. Human empathy is not enough. We need something that goes much deeper than that. We need the gospel. So my second point, and my third point for that matter, hopefully will be gospel-centered. Number two. Y'all just bring it up back there for me if you would. The gospel rouses or awakens, whatever word you want to put there, the gospel rouses our hearts to beat for the vulnerable and the oppressed. Why? Because the gospel makes clear that we, we are the defenseless. We are the vulnerable. We are the weak. We are the helpless. Perhaps not in a physical way, but spiritually, we are stillborns. We are dead. 
We are the ones in desperate need of intervention. The gospel says that we were the poor. Remember the, 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 the quartet of the vulnerable here. The gospel says that we were poor, spiritually bankrupt. And so Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know why he says that? Because if we are in Christ and our hope has been found in him, then we are rich and blessed with every heavenly blessing. But before that, we are poor, wretched, spiritually bankrupt. And the gospel says that we too were sojourners. We were aliens, separated from God. As Paul told us in Ephesians 2, if you'll remember, it says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But you see now, in Christ we've been brought near. In Christ we've been grafted into the people of God. In Christ we've been folded into the commonwealth of Israel. So we were poor. We were aliens. The gospel says that we are like widows, husbandless, in mourning. Blessed are those who mourn, Jesus says, for they will be comforted. So Christ provides the comfort by bringing us into his church, his bride. No longer are we unwanted, but we are betrothed to the Son. And the gospel says, yes, that we were fatherless and orphans, without hope in the world. Yet God in his glorious gospel says that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. We are the quartet of the vulnerable. Until we understand that spiritually speaking, until we understand that we are that quartet, we will never know how to care for people in the world the way we're supposed to. Because we'll be convinced somehow we can do it on our own. Somehow we can do it through our own human sorrow and empathy for those who are hurting. But the gospel should change everything. Don't we see? The reason our hearts should be roused to work on behalf of the vulnerable is not merely feelings of mercy and pity and compassion and sadness. Although all those things should be present, our hearts should be moved because of the gospel and empowered by the gospel that God in the riches of his grace through the sacrificial work of his son has atoned for the sins of his people and has granted them righteousness and in doing so has brought them into himself and has placed his spirit within them guaranteeing that they will be his for all eternity this is the good news and it changes everything I'm convinced that most of the time we try to stir people up for mercy ministry by appealing to human goodwill instead of by appealing to the gospel. I'm convinced that most of the time in churches too, we try to stir people up to get involved in orphan care, foster care, you name it, by appealing to human goodwill instead of by appealing to the gospel. We come at it from the wrong direction. We need to go much deeper. We need to have a movement of people meditating upon the truths that once we were alone without hope, poor, aliens, widows, and fatherless. And until we get to that point, then the church is simply a relief agency sprinkled with Christian lingo. The church will just be a relief agency sprinkled with Christian lingo. And we already have enough of those. That's what the Red Cross is now. The Red Cross began... 
as a gospel-centered ministry, over time, it drifted. I'm not saying they don't still do good stuff in the world, but they're not gospel-centered anymore, even though they have a cross. Of course, if you go to the Middle East, it's a crescent. It's the Red Crescent. You didn't know that? Yes. That's how far the Red Cross has drifted from the gospel. The church will do the same. And we'll just be a Christian relief agency if we're not centered on the gospel. Only in light of and empowered by the glorious truths of the gospel can we be a people who care for the vulnerable at the deepest level. Only in light of and empowered by the glorious truths of the gospel will we ever take a risk and love unconditionally. Then and only then, with hearts moved by the gospel, with hearts filled with Christ's very own righteous compassion, can we care for the voiceless and the vulnerable. And so that leads me to my third point, which is simply this. The gospel capacitates our hearts to beat for the vulnerable and the oppressed. Not only does the gospel stir us up and rouse our hearts, awaken our hearts to care for the vulnerable, the gospel is the only thing that makes it possible, capacitates a true heart that beats like God's for the vulnerable and the oppressed. My friends, I am not compassionate enough to care about orphans significantly enough to bring glory to God, and neither are you. In and of myself, I might feel human empathy, which is a reflection of the fact that I've been created in the image of God, but that empathy is easily drowned out by my own sinful dispositions. The empathy I felt for those children, many of whom were orphans in Honduras, digging through the dump, has easily faded four weeks later as I sit on the comfort of my couch. Because in and of myself, I am way too weak. Unless I keep the gospel in front of me and have God continue to remind me that I was in the dump. I was helpless. And if I just rely on my human empathy and don't ask for Christ to move in me in that righteousness that has been imputed to me, which includes his compassion to flow through me, It'll just fade. It'll all fade. It happens after every mission trip. Go on a mission trip. Come back all pumped up and watch it slowly fade away over the next few weeks. You see, I'm not compassionate enough, empathetic enough, sad enough, and definitely not good enough to care for the vulnerable. So again, we find our only hope in the gospel. We have to keep it before our eyes. If we have been truly transformed by the cross, then we will care for the hurting and the weak and the vulnerable. Not because of what, who we are, but because of who Christ is on our behalf. We will care for the vulnerable because Christ's compare, co- compassion and caring is actually flowing through us. Matter of fact, Caring for the vulnerable is a sign that your faith is real. That's what James talks about, doesn't he? We're going to get to that some in Radical today. That's what James talks about. If you have a faith that is true, then it's going to be a faith that works. He says, very connected with what he says about dead faith, he says this in 
James 1, 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is what? To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So in other words, the evidence that your faith is actually genuine, that the love of Christ is flowing through you, is that you do care for the orphan and the vulnerable. So don't, stand, don't sit here and think that I'm saying, well, because we just can't do it in and of ourselves, well, we don't need to care for the orphan. No, 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 no. I'm saying if we truly have embraced the gospel and if it it has taken hold of us, then we will care for the orphan and the vulnerable because we're submitting to the work of Christ through us. Now, we don't need to get this reversed. This is where I think the cool hip factor kind of messes churches up because we get it the reverse and we justify ourselves and make ourselves feel good because we care for the orphan. Because I care for the orphan and the widow, therefore... My faith is genuine, or, my, or, or therefore I'm, I'm doing something good for God and getting points in heaven or something like that. The caring of the orphan and the widow doesn't, doesn't give you faith. It is the evidence, or doesn't give you right standing with God. It's the evidence of your right standing with God. The real work of faith that is the fruit uh, that should be happening in the Christian's life is the fruit of an alien righteousness credited to our account. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So that in him we might become what? The righteousness of God. You ever thought about that? In him we become the righteousness of God? That is absolutely astounding. And if you go back to the Old Testament, and don't just dump the Old Testament because it's Old Covenant. If you go back to the Old Testament and you see this constant call for God to defend, for, for the Israelites to defend the, the, the justice of the, of the widow and the orphan and the fatherless and the, and the uh, sojourner. God oftentimes ties that in with his own righteousness. Why do you do this? Because I'm a righteous God. Tim Keller, again, I'll point you to generous um, justice. Again, he does a great job of tying in the righteousness of God with the justice he calls for us to carry out in the world. And so, if we have become the righteousness of God, if that, if that has been imputed to us and counted to our credit, then we will care for the orphan. Thanks be to God that I don't have to be righteous enough but that Christ bore my sins, and in, my, in place of my horrid unrighteousness, he has imputed to me his glorious righteousness. And only now can I seek justice for the oppressed and the vulnerable. Only now can I care for the orphan in the right way. But so long as I'm just sitting here trying to conjure up my own emotional, empathetic care for orphans in my flesh, I will fail. It's only when I go to the cross and beg Christ to do a work in me will I ever care for the orphan the way I should, or will I ever fight for justice the way I should. The righteousness of God, the, the imputed righteousness, it changes everything. We're talking about orphans today. You know what's been on my mind as I've read this pas- these passages and, and, and some other passages on, because we can, we, can, we can fill the whole time up with just reading Scripture about God defending the, that quartet of the vulnerable, is that if I'm going to be Doing things because of the right reason, that is the righteousness of God in me, flowing out of me to the world. 
then it puts aside all other motivations, including political motivations. And so God says, care for the orphan. That's popular. Care for the widow. Probably fairly popular. Care for the poor. Eh. Care for the immigrant. Not if I'm a Republican. No way. I got to put my flag in the camp of my political party, and I can't dare step across. I'm not saying, I'm not going to tell you what you got to think about the immigrant. What I'm saying is, let the gospel drive what you think about the immigrant, not your political party. Let the gospel drive. I'm not saying, let's go tear down the fence and say, come on, let's have a party. Fiesta, amigos. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying, though, is politics will not tell you how to treat the immigrant. The gospel will tell you how to treat the immigrant. And that's where we plant our flag, whether or not our political party says yay or nay. And you will not find any political party in this country that lines up with the gospel. And so if you're going to take a stand and you're going to be in a political party, let's take a stand for the gospel when it's popular and when it's not. The gospel changes everything. Not just our view of the orphan. Everything. Then and only then, when Christ's righteousness has been imputed to us, then and only then will we image God. Because Christ Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Only then will we image God the way we should in this world. Only knowing, only after knowing that our God, by his very nature, is a God whose heart beats for the vulnerable. And that the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ rouses, but more than that, capacitates our heart to beat for the gospel. Only then, only then, only if you have that information will I dare share with you the statistics of adoption. I didn't want to start off with the statistics. Because the statistics will stir up your human emotion. I want to start off with the gospel. And I want to ask you and ask myself, in light of these statistics that I'm about to share, what is the gospel telling us to do as a church, as the church? So here's some stats. You probably know them if you're familiar with adoption. I don't have them on screen. Um, Between 143 million to 210 million, somewhere between that number, and it's hard to get an exact count. I'm sure you can imagine why. Because there's orphans that aren't even being counted in this world. So somewhere between 143 and 210 million, the Christian Alliance for Orphans puts the number at 163 million. So they're, they're saying there's about 163 million orphans in the world. 163 million orphans in the world. Now, to put that into perspective, that's larger than the population of the entire nation of Russia. Russia has 143 million people in it. So there is a nation, not just a small nation, a large nation worth of fatherless out there. Every 15 seconds, another child is orphaned due to AIDS in Africa. So that means, well, I guess it depends on how much longer I go, but during this sermon, 200 new AIDS orphans came into existence. Every 2.2 seconds, an orphan ages out of an orphanage and is left totally on his or her own. 
And a large percentage of those kids go into prostitution or criminal activities or are sold into human trafficking. Others commit suicide and many just simply disappear. Now that's the global statistics in the United States. In the United States, there's 800,000 kids that will pass through the foster care system each year. 129,000 of those are waiting to be adopted. So a nice large city worth of children are waiting to be adopted. 25,000 foster kids age out of the program each year. Now, I think a sign that our nation, one of the proofs that our nation was a nation that was founded on Christian principles, is the fact that the culture of adoption in the United States is stronger than any other country in the world. So, I'm thankful that we live in a country that does care for adoption. The statistics say that one-third of every American, of all Americans, have considered adoption at one point. That's pretty amazing. Unfortunately, though, only four, 2% have ever actually adopted. So only 2% of our population have ever adopted. 4% of the homes in America right now have an adopted child in them. Okay? Now that, that statistic far outpaces the rest of the world. So glory be to God that there is a move in our country toward adoption, okay? But it's still not enough. Now, again, I don't want to separate the global orphan crisis and the need for adoption, foster care, and other programs to care for orphans from the gospel. Okay, Jaya Packer writes this in his wonderful classic, Knowing God. He says, Adoption is the highest blessing of the gospel, higher even than the gift of justification because of the richer relationship with God that it involves. Justification is a forensic idea conceived in terms of law and viewing God as judge. Adoption is a family idea conceived in terms of love and viewing God as father. In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship and establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the father is a greater. So this was J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God. Until we fully understand the centrality of adoption in the gospel story, the gospel narrative, we won't fully understand the importance of adoption in our world. So you see, adoption is at the beginning, at the middle, at the climax, and at the, at the end of, of the whole narrative, the story of what it means to be saved. Ephesians 1, verses 4 through 5, or I think it's mainly just verse 5, Sarah, it, says, it says he predestined us, this is speaking of what God the Father did, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So adoption existed before the universe. Before God said, let there be anything, he adopted sons. So adoption existed at the very beginning. At the beginning of the story, God had adopted children to belong to himself. And then as the story unfolds, we read passages like this in Romans 9, 4. Speaking of the Israelites, God's chosen people, it says, They are the Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. So as God's story of redemption continues to unfold and God narrows it down to a people, the, the people of Israel, again, adoption is involved in the picture. And of course, the cross is the grand climax of the story of redemption. And we read in Galatians 4, it says, When the fullness of time had come, 
God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So when the fullness of time had come, the cross is right there at the apex of history, the center point of all time. The cross right there. At that point, God sent forth the son to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And then as God's story comes to a close, as we live in these last days and look forward to the day of redemption, Romans 8.23 says this, Not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. So we are adopted, yet there is still a step of completion. That is the redemption of our bodies. So I just think it's amazing that God uses this word adoption through all, at the beginning, predestination, Israel, the cross, and glorification. Adoption. He uses the same word. It's this beautiful picture of what God is doing, uh, doing for us on our behalf and understanding it. Vertical adoption enables us to fully understand and embrace horizontal adoption. When you consider the central role that adoption plays within the overall story of redemption, you realize that it reveals the unfathomable, that God actually cherishes and delights in us, his children. He is, as it were, moving heaven and earth to bring us to himself. He has become our father Romans 8.15, For you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Fatherlessness is one of Satan's greatest tools to kill the spread of the gospel. Fatherlessness is one of Satan's greatest tools to kill the spread of the gospel. Why? I'll tell you why. Maybe you've had this happen before. It's happened to me a couple of times, but you hear it all the time. Someone will come to you and say, you know what? I just can't imagine God being my father because my father was abusive. Or my father did this. Or my father did that. And we know that what we do as fathers will affect our children in the way they view God. That's why fatherhood is so important. We'll get into that in Ephesians. Men, if we get through Ephesians 5 and you don't feel the weight of the world on your shoulders after reading those passages and then feel the glory of the gospel as Jesus talks about how he has done these things on your behalf, then you don't get Ephesians 5, the rest of the passages we'll be reading. Fatherhood is huge. So if I'm an angry, vindictive father, that's the image of God that my children will have of the father. So imagine children who grow up fatherless. What image do they have of God? They have nothing to relate to. At least here in the States, many of those who grew up fatherless at least had grandfathers or uncles or other men who took took interest in their life. And they're not just sitting in an institution in a room full of other children waiting for a father. So fatherlessness is one of Satan's greatest tools to kill the spread of the gospel because people can't understand the father's love God the Father's love because they don't have a physical father. We must understand that the fatherly love of God that he has for us, we must not be as Demer's going through the prodigal God. And he talks about the older brother and the younger brother. If we view the father as a taskmaster whom we have to please while we're on this earth, then we don't get adoption. 
We have to understand our Father, who He is. We can't be like the older brother. We cannot view ourselves as hirelings, but as heirs. You are not a hireling serving a taskmaster to do things for God. You are an heir if you're in Jesus Christ. And this cry of Abba, Father, these two verses that, where it talks about us as being adopted and crying Abba, Father, the one we just read in Romans 8, but also in Galatians 4, 6, it says, Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying Abba, Father. This cry of Abba, Father, is more than just a, a familial cry to our loving Father. It's a hope-filled cry for deliverance. The only other time you see the phrase Abba, Father, like that in Scripture is where? Do you guys know where? In the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus is on his knees sweating blood and he says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. It's a heartfelt cry for deliverance. So in Romans 8 and in Galatians 4, when it talks about us crying out, Abba, Father, it's not just us saying, hey, Daddy. It's us crying out to the Father that we'll be one day delivered from these bodies of sin, from, these, from this world of sin. It's a longing and a confidence of that great day when we're redeemed. The completion of our adoption. So as we cry, Abba, Father, It's a hope-filled cry for deliverance. And those who are longing for and confident of that great day of deliverance are naturally or should be naturally people who hear the groaning for deliverance coming from the thousands of voiceless orphans around the world and who are willing to pour out their lives in service toward all those who are the most vulnerable in our society today. So how does the church then, final question, conclude it. We're going to wrap it all up here. Put a bow on it. How does the church then make a dent in the crisis that our world faces, namely the orphan crisis? How does the church make a dent in that? I'll give you the first and main way. Ready? It's earth-shattering. We preach the gospel. It's the first way you make a dent in the orphan crisis is you preach the gospel. Unless you disagree with me that the gospel is not at the foundation of what it is to mean to, mean to care for orphans, then, then you can disagree with me. But I'm telling you, the primary way this church or any church in America can care for orphans is, first of all, to preach the gospel. Because we can't care for orphans until we get that right. But there's other things we can do. We can pray and ask God for the gospel to take a deeper hold of our hearts. We need to pray and ask God to open our eyes and soften our hearts to the countless opportunities around us. For all sorts of care for the vulnerable. Right here in this community. But specifically about about orphans. You could be involved in foster care. um, Respite care for those families that have adopted and just need someone to come alongside them and give them some support. We have families in our church that have been through adoptions and it has not been easy. It has not been all rosy. And they're tired. And they need you just to come up and say, hey... How can I relieve your stress, your exhaustion as your brother and sister in Christ? That's orphan care. You know, Heather and I are involved in a program called Safe Families. We haven't done it in a while, but we've been involved in Safe Families. We were talking last night. Really, Safe Families is what I call preventative orphan care. Because what you're trying to do is get involved in families' lives that kids are about to go into the foster care system and get involved and help them put the family back together. 
It's preventative orphan care. As I said earlier, we fight against abortion. I had one person say to me once, actually it was, it was an exchange online, well, you people who are against abortion, don't you realize that if we'd have 50 million more orphans in our world if abortion wasn't legal? Well, that's kind of like what's going on in Sweden right now where they've declared they would like a Down syndrome-free society, not through medical advances, but through forcing all women to have screenings to determine whether or not their children have Down syndrome and then encouraging those women to abort the children. Sweden's government has said within 10 years we are going to be a Down syndrome-free society. So the solution... The solution to the orphan crisis can't be worse than the crisis itself. You don't murder 50 million children in order to solve the orphan crisis. So we fight for all the helpless. We support families doing adoptions. That's why we've got our adoption fund. You consider adoption. You look at ways that you can do mercy ministry in your community. But let me give us four very concrete ways right now that we as a church can serve. I, we have been connected with an orphanage in Liberia called Lifesong. And we've done some things for them. We helped them dig a well. We raised money to dig a well for them a couple of years ago. And we've been praying for them. They're on our list of, of ministries we support. But we really haven't been able to give them a whole lot of money yet because, well, we just don't have a whole lot of money as a church. I would like for, as we get begin to prepare our budget for the next year for us to consider a, 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 an amount that we're going to support their, their uh, actual budget with. And so I, I, I want to put, like as, 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 as been, David Platts told us to put everything on the table and ask, okay, what does he want us to do with all of our money? And so I want to consider that. But I want to put a challenge out here that Lifesong has something where you can support an orphan for $50. $50 a month. It's a recurring amount. $50 a month. And so I'm putting a challenge out for our church to support four orphans. Now, you might say, I can't do $50 a month, which very well may be the case. But maybe you could do $20 a month or $10 a month. So what I'm hoping to do is even partner families together to, to come together. And as a, as a congregation, can we not come up with $200 a month from the collective group of people here to support four orphans. So I'm going to give you four concrete ways to make a dent in the orphan crisis. And the first one is this young lady named Hawa. Hawa lives <clears throat> at one of the orphanages there in Liberia. Her parents are unknown. Um, she lived with some extended relatives for a while. She's quiet and shy. Her birth date is unknown. Um, she, they, so they think she's around eight years old. She's in the nursery class at her school, which obviously tells you educationally where she's at. She's a good little girl. Her prayer or the prayer request for her would be for her health. She has trouble eating. She has no appetite. And that she'll make friends and connect better with the caregivers and the children. So I'd love to be able to say within the next few weeks to call Keith and Kay Knapp and say, our church, we have enough money now. Hawa is going to get what she needs every month from our church. Or Lee here. Lee, he was born in 2005, September 10th, 2005. He came to the orphanage when he was only a year and a half. He's in the nursery class as well. 
Um, he's social. He's happy. His favorite thing is playing. But the prayer request for him is that he will grow to be a good student, that his attention span will improve, that he can understand the love of Christ. What caught me on that one was that his attention span will improve. I've been praying that prayer for my children for years. All right? Attention span, right? Now, the reason I say that, and I don't mean to joke about it, is that, you know, we've been able to, you know, my children have some learning disabilities, different things, and so many, some of you guys in here have challenges you guys face with your families, and we have resources here. But my wife and I, part, or my whole family participated in a, in a dyslexia fundraiser fun run, 5K. Uh, Heather and Olivia ran a lot of it, but I had Emma Kate, so I walked most of it. That was my only excuse for walking. Uh, but we looked around, and the only people we could find, with maybe one or two exceptions, were just rich white folks everywhere. Where are the underprivileged? Where are those kids that aren't going to ever have their attention span issues or any other issues they might have dealt with? Well, this is Lee. He's not going to get to go to any doctors or anything up here in the States to help him with better nutrition or anything else to help him with his attention span. Here's future David. That's an interesting name, but this is a girl. Her background's not really known. She was abandoned. That's all they know. She came from a large family. She arrived without clothes or anything. She's, also, she's in the K through 1 class. Future is getting more open to friendships and loves to sing. She wants to be a doctor when she grows up. The prayer request for her is that she will understand love, both human and God's. She has challenges with love because she's been abandoned. Last one here is Abel. They may pronounce it Abel, I'm not sure. He was born on November 29th of 2003. His father was a low-skilled farmer but had about 10 children and they were unable to care for him. He was very small when he arrived at the orphanage, but now he's in good health. He's in the K-2 through class. He's smart, a good student. He loves studying the Bible, science, and math. He loves to play soccer and dance. And his dream is to one day be a pastor. I like this guy. The prayer request for him is that he'll continue to be motivated to do well in school and to use his gifts for God's glory. These are the people... Lodged to the front of the semi-truck. Multiplied by millions and millions. Thus says the Lord God, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, my prayer this morning is that you'd stir up my heart. And for the orphan and for all the vulnerable in our society not only in this nation, but in this world. But God, please don't let that be divorced from the gospel. Because if it's not informed by and empowered by and moved by, equipped by, whatever word we want to use, if it's not fully 
existent through and in the gospel, it doesn't mean anything. So God, I pray for our church, our small numbers, just a few of us, even fewer here this morning. But God, you don't need great numbers of people to make a change in this world. You need hearts that have been transformed by the gospel, that are in fire for the gospel. And that because of that, they cannot, we cannot let the needs of the vulnerable go unmet. And we will do all that we can through Christ, by His power, to make a difference in our world. So Lord, I pray this morning that if there be anyone in here whom you're putting on their heart to give towards these four, or in some other way to serve those who are in need in our community, Lord, that you wouldn't let them go home, sit on that couch, begin to enjoy their comfort, and it fade away. And by the third quarter of the game, it's gone. But instead, Lord, stir us up. Stir us up to fast. When's the last time any of us fasted for orphans? When's the last time any of us fasted for the gospel to spread in our neighborhood? Stir us up, Lord. I'm tired of being this half-hearted pastor and this half-hearted Christian. So I pray that you stir me up and stir us all up. We pray for these four kiddos. We pray that their needs might be met. We pray for Emmanuel and Ramona Jones who run the orphanage there. We pray, Lord, for Keith and Kay Knapp who are the, the stateside representatives for the orphanage. We pray for Life Song for orphans who are doing such a good work around the world to help uh, in-country orphan care. We pray for the Alliance, the Christian Alliance of for orphans, which, of which Lifesong is a partner, that they would continue to stir up the churches to serve the orphans. We pray, Lord, for the church of Jesus Christ, that we would be such a, a light in this dark world that the people see us and they see what we're doing and they give glory to you, Father in heaven, because all we can say is it's not us. We don't have the righteousness. We don't have the, the goodness. We don't have the compassion to do these type of things. It is Christ in us, the hope of glory. That's the only reason we're doing these things. I pray, Father, for a move in our church and a move in our church in this nation for the vulnerable, for the weak, not just for the orphans, for the alien, for the widow, and for the poor as well. We ask you to do this, Jesus. We want to be reflectors of you as you walk through the streets of those filth-ridden nation of Israel with all that dirt and all the poor and all the weak. And you sat there and touched the sick and ate with the dirty and healed and mended those who were ill. So God, I pray, Lord, that you stir up a heart in us May the Spirit of Jesus move in us and may we cry out, Abba, Father, may we be delivered from these bodies of sin that drive us to not care. May we be delivered from this dark world that only cares about orphans when it's popular. Oh God, stir us up in a new way. Have your way with us now as we respond in song and with prayer requests and with the giving of tithes and offerings. We ask all this in our only hope, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please stand, if you would, as we sing.